Welcome to Behold Your God, a study in the book of Isaiah. So we are going to be in the Old Testament. This is a 10-week study. That 10 weeks includes today. And we're actually going to start in the book of Matthew because I want to start out proving to you why we should bother studying the book of Isaiah. And in order to understand why we should bother studying the book of Isaiah, we need to start in the New Testament. So go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 1. That is where we will get started. We're going to be doing a little bit of flipping today, more flipping than we will usually do. I kind of like to stay in one place, um, but we're just going to be in the Gospels, so it won't be too, it won't be too hard, and I, I'll try not to go too fast. You can find, find the places. All right, so Matthew chapter 1, uh, Matthew opens with the genealogy connecting Christ to both Abraham and David, and we'll see in a bit why that's so important, not only for Matthew, but for Isaiah as well. Um, but after that genealogy, that's where we are going to pick up. Uh, I still need to get there. All right, so Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Anyone want to take a guess which prophet in the Old Testament wrote that? Isaiah did. Isaiah did. Absolutely. Very good. Very good. So you guys can do this. All right. So uh, first chapter, we're only 23 verses into the first book of the New Testament, and we see a direct quote from the book of Isaiah, a very significant quote outlining the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ. I actually see a very strong allusion to the book of Isaiah even earlier in verse 21, where it talks about he will save his people from their sins. All right, flip a few pages over to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. It's just the very next book, keeping it super easy. All right, so Mark chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, actually. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, gospel means good news, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his ways straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So this is a direct quote from Isaiah 40. And actually all four gospel writers quote uh, this particular section of Isaiah 40 and, and, and match it up with the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, but let's also take a look at those words. At the very verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, really important that we understand Christ is not Jesus' last name. All right? 
and we laugh, but I don't, that doesn't get talked about much. That doesn't get clarified very often. Um, it's actually a title. It's a messianic title conveying the truth that he is God's anointed one. And where do we get the idea? Where did Mark, because see, Mark didn't have gospels to read. Mark did not have a New Testament. Um, he had the testimony of, of an eyewitness and account of Jesus Christ, but this very rich, like, title, Christ. Where, where did Mark and these other guys get the idea that Yahweh is going to send a servant king to redeem Israel and the rest of the world? Where did they get this idea that a Christ, an anointed one, was coming? Guess where? The book of Isaiah. That is where this idea is most thoroughly developed in the Old Testament. So every time you see that title, Jesus Christ, there is very much, in a very real sense, an allusion to the book and the teaching, the prophecy of Isaiah. All right, still in the Gospel of Mark, skip down just a few more verses. Verse 9. Let's see, make sure I'm in the right place. Yes, verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son, and you I am well Please. Now, if you have a study Bible, it has a little footnote. It probably is footnoting you right to Isaiah 42, verse 1. There's, a, there's an allusion there, once again, in the words of Father God commending his son, um, a reference to the book of Isaiah. All right? And all of it, just, we're just in the first chapter, first chapter of the book of Mark. All right, flipping now to the book of Luke. Now, Luke begins his gospel with the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. They are the parents of John the Baptist, this promised forerunner. Uh, and then, after introducing them, we get to this, uh, the announcement of Gabriel to Mary. Some very familiar Christmas passage. Uh, let's look at Luke chapter 1, verse 31. It says, And behold, Gabriel is speaking to Mary. He says, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, this is not a direct quote. However, it is a very clear allusion to Isaiah 9, which is one of our favorite Christmas passages for us Christians. Um, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor. Um, I don't know why I'm drawing a complete blank. That happens sometimes. You guys know the passage I'm talking about, but it's a strong allusion to that. That's where Isaiah develops this idea of this great servant king reigning on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. And so Luke is playing off of that. There's another allusion to Isaiah in Mary's song. If you'll look at um, Luke 1, 40, let's see, 49. She says, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. If you look at the Greek translation of Isaiah 57, 15, there's a strong, um, a strong correlation there. Now, the first direct quote we see in the book of Luke, of, of Isaiah, is at the end of Zechariah's prophecy. 
Uh, And that is in chapter 1, verse 76. If you'll go there. Chapter 1 of Luke, verse 76. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of um, context, Mary and Joseph have brought Jesus to the temple. This is Zechariah. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. He prophesies, and this is what... um, uh, this is, I'm sorry, the advent of John the Baptist. And this is what he prophesies at, at that time. Verse 60, or verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way. So he's speaking of John the Baptist. To give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Um, So after Jesus, so that is is a direct quote. Again, if you have a study Bible and you have the little footnotes, it's going to take you to the book of Isaiah. Now, after Jesus is born, I got ahead of myself. Now Now Jesus is born, all right, and now he is being brought into the temple. There's a man named Simeon, and filled with the Spirit, he speaks words about the baby Jesus. And we see these in Luke chapter 2, verse 29. So go ahead and get there. Luke chapter 2, verse 29. All right, so Simeon takes uh, Jesus into his arms. He blesses God and he says this, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This is really key a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. All right, so here we have another direct quote, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And this idea of the promised Messiah being a light to the nations, so not just Israel, but to the entire world, is mentioned over and over and over and over again in the book of Isaiah. It is one of his favorite metaphors, which is why, by the way, there is a picture of a sunrise on the cover of this study. Um, It's really, really key. Really, the entire missionary vision of the early church is rooted in the prophecy of Isaiah and his focus on the nations and how Jesus is going to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations. And so we see that over and over again. It's being highlighted here. Now turn just a page. We'll get to Luke chapter 3, verse 4. And uh, we have that, that, uh, that reference to John the Baptist and linking him up with Isaiah chapter 40. So Luke chapter 3, verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now, that is all really exciting, but the most exciting direct quote in the book of Luke of the, 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 the writing of Isaiah is actually one more chapter over, chapter 4. So Jesus is in his uh, hometown of Nazareth here. Verse 16 is where I'm going to pick up. It says, he came to Nazareth, so he, started, he has started his public ministry, and, uh, where he had been brought up, and as was custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read, so a synagogue was the place of worship, 
um, it would have been a, a crowd of, of devout Jews who are very, very familiar with um, the, the, the writings of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Isaiah. Verse 17, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book. It would have been a scroll. And he found the place where it was written. So there's very intention, much, a lot of intentionality here. He, was, he is searching for a specific passage. And then he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. Bold move. It's so important for us to understand the Old Testament was not just important to Jesus. It defined reality for Jesus. It it was central to his identity. And we see that so clear, so beautifully presented in this passage in Luke chapter 4. So just four chapters in, and my goodness, Isaiah is all over, all over the book of Luke, right? Well, how about the Gospel of John? John's kind of an oddball among the Gospel writers, right? His, his Gospel is quite, has a quite different flavor um, than the other Gospels. Are we going to find a strong Isaiah connection there as well? What do you think? Yes, we do. We very much do. Um, in fact, I want you to take a look at the very first verse of the Gospel of John. If you've been around the church for a while, this one is extremely familiar to you. Another favorite Christmas passage, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right. There's no direct quote here, but most scholars see a strong connection between John's concept of Jesus being the Word, the Word made flesh, um, the, the connection with that with Isaiah 55, verses 9 through 11, and we won't read that, but that's the passage where Isaiah says the word, God's word will go forth, and it will accomplish what God intends, and it will not return void. And so we have this this representation of the the powerful word of God, which, which certainly is picking up on the themes of Genesis 1, right, where God speaks, he speaks, and it happens. And then in Isaiah 55, the word of God is going to go forth and it's going to send this this redemptive, it's going to accomplish the redemptive purpose of God. It's not going to return empty. It is going to accomplish what's good. And then John, who would have been steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the book of Isaiah, says, in the beginning was the word. So we got some Genesis 1 action. We got some Isaiah 55 action. It's beautiful. And so they're weaving all of these themes together. Um, And and so that's a a very strong connection with the book of Isaiah. Um, Skip down to verse 22. Again, we have a focus here on John the Baptist. I told you that every gospel writer quotes uh, Isaiah chapter 40. We see it here. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 22. Then they said to him, John the Baptist, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. 
what do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So even John self-identified with uh, that Isaiah 40 passage. Uh, Then, let's see, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This idea of atonement, this idea of the Lamb dying in the place of the people, this is uh, a clear allusion to Isaiah 53, where that concept is so beautifully developed, um, even in the Old Testament. So that's what he is playing off of there. Again, we are not even out of the very first chapter of the book of John before we're seeing all of these references to the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, as you move on into the New Testament, we're not going to go to, we're only going to go to one more passage, but if you move on into the New Testament, you will see the book of Isaiah sprinkled all over the writings of Paul and Peter, and we are going to be hunting those down as we continue throughout um, our study together. One more place I want to take you, and that is Acts chapter 8. So just a few more pages to the right. Acts chapter 8, this might be one of my favorite stories in the Bible, in the New Testament at least. All right, I'm going to pick up in verse 26 so we can get a little bit of context here. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and what is he reading, class? He is reading Isaiah. So he had gone to Jerusalem. Somebody had given him a portion of the Isaiah scroll, at least a portion, and he's, he's sitting there reading it. And the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join his chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Oh, my word. Wouldn't that be so exciting? If, like, God calls you to witness to someone, they're already reading the Bible. That's very exciting. Talk about low-hanging fruit, right? And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And you guys are about to totally know how he feels very soon. (laughs) That's supposed to be a joke. You're going to be like, I don't understand what I'm reading. April, please help me. That's what I'm here for, all right? Do you understand what you're reading? He said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he said, and he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. That's Isaiah 53. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or is it someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. The guy ends up getting baptized and ends up taking the gospel back to his homeland, right? And, and so more spreading, more spreading of the gospel. I know it's hard for those of us in the American church to imagine anyone coming to faith in Christ without John 3.16 or the Romans road, right? Like those are, if you don't know that, I don't even know if you got saved. 
what you're going to see is that by the end of this study, someone can come to faith in Christ from the book of Isaiah, you guys. It's that clear. It's that gospel-rich. We are going to get the most beautiful glimpse of Christ and what he came to do. So I've started out talking to you about all these passages to make this point. And finally, to your listening guide, you guys. First point on your listening guide. I'm 23 minutes in. The story of Jesus is a continuation. The story of Jesus is a continuation of a story that began way before Matthew chapter 1. So if, Jesus, if people ask you, well, when does the story of Christ begin? Like, what book of the Bible? Do not tell them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where you need to start. No. That's not where it begins. Those gospels are a continuation. They're a continuation of a story that, that started being told way back in Genesis chapter 1. A story of redemption, a story of a savior, a story of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, all of these New Testament authors assume that we know the book of Isaiah. Do you notice they throw out these quotes? They don't explain them. They just throw them out as though we know, as though we know where they came from, as though we know, as though we're able to connect the dots between what Isaiah was saying and and what's being accomplished in the person and work of Jesus. In fact, I think it would be really hard for the authors of the New Testament to conceive of an understanding of Christ that is detached from the prophecy of Isaiah. And yet most of us, me included, have attempted to do just that. And I think we've gotten along just fine. I'm not saying you have to know Isaiah to know Jesus. That is not what I'm saying at all. We can get along just fine without ever reading the book of Isaiah, without knowing anything about the book of Isaiah. But I'm here to tell you, based on personal experience, that if you will buckle down and do the hard work of studying the book of Isaiah, and it's not easy. It's long, you guys, and it's poetry. Like, it's not straightforward. It's hard work. But if you will buckle down and do that, that, the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus will come alive to you as it never has before. I honestly feel like I've gone from watching the gospel play out on a little black and white TV to like now I'm, I'm watching this like high-definition, giant flat screen. And I thought I already had a really good grasp of things. Wow. I'm like, whoa. It's amazing. It's amazing when you, when you, when you really start to immerse yourself in the prophecy of Isaiah. It just opens up because history, um, the history of the Old Testament, what's going on in the Old Testament is just, it, it makes what's going on in the New Testament come alive in such a powerful way. Now, just like the authors of the New Testament assume their readers know about the book of Isaiah, Isaiah assumes his readers know a few things as well. He assumes that we have a basic understanding of Old Testament history. Now, <laughs> history doesn't preach very well on a Sunday morning. It doesn't produce a really good altar call. It doesn't lead to tears. It doesn't lead to results. You know, it's just flat-out learning. And so for many of us, uh, we are not introduced to a whole lot of Old Testament history unless you sign up for a Bible study. And even a lot of Bible studies these days uh, are just completely focused on application, especially women's Bible studies. And, I mean, history doesn't seem all that applicable. And so we don't hear much of it. But there's absolutely no way to understand what's going on in the book of Isaiah 
unless we understand what's going on um, in the whole old, uh, of, of the Old Testament. And so I want to spend the bulk of our time that we have left just giving you a little overview of, of the storyline of the Old Testament. For many of you, this will be a review. For some of you, this will be new. For all of us, this will be exciting because it really, really is. It really is. When you start to like put the pieces together and see the big picture of what God is doing. All right, so we are doing an outline of the storyline of the Bible. It makes sense that we would start in Genesis chapter 1. And so if you want to turn there, first, I don't know, I've got tons of stuff in the front of my Bible, but sort of the first, first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. All right, so in this chapter, we have this beautiful description of creation, the pinnacle of which is the creation of humans, the creation of mankind. Uh, pick up with me at chapter 1, verse 26. It says, And God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, every tree, um, and it shall be food for you to every beast of the earth, every bird of the sky, everything that moves on the ground. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. So what we need to understand, and that, that whole concept of the image of God, there's a lot that goes into that. The original audience would have picked up a strong royal theme from that. The image of God is, is, a, is a royal term. All right, so kings were thought to be the image of God. And so what's happening here is Adam and Eve are presented at the very beginning as these royal figures. And from the very beginning, God is going to fulfill his purpose for creation. And this is crazy to me. I do not know why he did it this way. But he's going to fulfill his purpose for creation by partnering with humans, reigning on his behalf mediating his life and his blessing to the rest of the world. That's what's going on here. That is the call, uh, the, the commission that has been given to, to these human beings that God has created. How does that go? Not well. It goes terribly wrong. And um, it goes wrong by, like, the third chapter. All right? We don't even get very long of, of, of this blissful uh, existence. These royal figures define, decide to redefine good and evil on their own terms. And so from Genesis 3 on, humans are at odds with their maker. However, tucked away in the list of tragic consequences of their rebellion is a promise. It's a promise of a wounded victor who will crush the head of the enemy. Look at this with me. Often this is referred to as the first gospel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the um, curse that's being called down on the serpent. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So right there we can expect a constant battle between the enemy and God and his people, right? Um, and he shall bruise you on the head, that's a fatal blow, right? And you will bruise him on the heel. Now, 
important for us to see that from this point on, the theme of seed, you notice he said your seed, right? So the theme of seed and offspring becomes a really big deal in the biblical narrative, and we need to keep an eye out for it in the book of Isaiah. I was listening to a podcast, um, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, one of my all-time favorite Bible teachers. He's a Hebrew scholar. And I was listening to one this morning. He talked about how we can think of the Bible as, as being hyperlinked, just like the Internet. You're never on a page on the Internet. It connects to 15,000 other pages, right? You just, you kind of, you're able to see, oh, that's underlined, or that's highlighted, or that's bolded. So I bet if I click on that, it's going to take me to all these other places. And he talked about how the, the, the Bible is like that. The Hebrew scriptures are like that. So you, you, you're going to get, the, the longer you study, you're going to get a feel for, oh, that word's underlined. That word's repeated a lot. That's a theme I keep seeing over and over. And it's like you click on that word seed or offspring, and you really start to hunt it down, and you start to trace it down. You're like, oh, my goodness. Like, it's all connected. And, and it's really beautiful when you can start to do that. So I'm going to try to, in our study, be pointing things out to you, pointing out those hyperlinks that are woven, that connect all of these different books of the Bible together in one big story that points to Jesus. And seed, or offspring, is, is definitely, um, definitely one of those words. All right, so where are we? Okay, so from Genesis 3 on, things do not get better. They get worse and worse. Even after cleansing the world through the flood, sin still remains in human hearts, and even Noah chooses, just like Adam and Eve, to redefine good and evil on his own terms. So by Genesis chapter 11, the entire civil, we have a, a whole civilization that is redefining good and evil on, on their own terms, and that civilization is called Babel or Babylon. Babylon, that's another hyperlinked word. Trace Babylon throughout the whole of the Bible. That's a big theme. You're going to see a lot of Babylon show up. We're going to see Babylon in Isaiah for sure. Well, God scatters these corrupted humans. Remember, they're trying to make that tower, and God makes it where they can't talk to each other anymore. Kind of hard to build a thing when you can't understand each other, right? So uh, he, he scatters them, but he is not done with them. Remember, God's intention from the very beginning is to partner with humans to bring about life and blessing for the entire world. That is plan A. God does not have a plan B. He does not need a plan B. As bad as it looks, God does not ever need a plan B. Plan A is to bless the entire world by partnering with humans. Well, how in the world is he going to do that now? Well, out of Babylon, he's going to call two new representatives. Abram and Sarai, later called Abraham and Sarah. And he enters into a covenant with them. You can think of covenant as a partnership with them. And we see this covenant kind of laid out for us in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. If you want to turn there, you can. These verses should be highlighted, underlined, starred, circled. There should be little hearts around them. There should be stars. There should be flowers. I don't know. However you want, uh, those of you with a preset background, there should be so many little pictures drawn on these verses that you don't even know. You can't even see the words anymore, all right? 
because this is absolutely um, essential to the whole architecture of the Bible, this passage right here. So Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, which interestingly enough, didn't even know God at all. Didn't know God at all. But God knew him. (laughs) We're going to see this theme uh, again and again throughout Scripture as well. So the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, seed, offspring. There's that theme again. We got another hyperlink, all right? And I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Genesis chapter 1, it's really obvious that God just wants to bless the stink out of his creation. And here we see it again, right? So you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Bless you, the one who curses you, I will curse. And this is really key. In you, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth, that's like the entire world, all the nations, every tribe, every tongue, every people, all of humanity will be blessed through these representatives that God has chosen. So God is going to bring life and salvation and blessing to the entire world through this one family, and this family is later going to be called Israel, right? And what's really significant here is that from this point on, when whatever God does with humanity hinges on what he does with Israel. And that's really important that we understand. Now, does that mean, does God love, who, who does God love? Is Israel the most? No, God loves humanity the most. He partners with Israel to bring his salvation and blessing and, and life to the world, but God loves humanity the most. And Israel is a, is, is, is a, is a, a representative through which he can dispense his blessing um, to the rest of the world. All right, fast forward to the book of Exodus. All right, Exodus 19. You can go ahead and turn there. I'll give you a little bit of the backstory because we're doing a lot of flipping here. All right, Exodus 19. Abraham's family has grown into a great nation just as God promised, but they are enslaved in Egypt. It's like the worst plot twist ever, all right? And God, of course, remains faithful. We can expect that of him. He confronts the evil of Egypt. Remember all of those plagues? Even if you haven't read the Bible, have you seen the Disney movie, Prince of Egypt, right? So we have all of those plagues. And and he rescues his people through the waters of the Red Sea. Let me tell you something. That Exodus imagery hyperlinks all over the place. Being rescued through the waters All right, like hyperlink, click, click, bam, 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 beautiful imagery. And we're going to see a lot of that Exodus imagery in the book of Isaiah. And I'll point it out to you um, when uh, when we get there. All right, so he brings them through the waters. Following this rescue, God makes another covenant. And this time, it's not just with one man and one woman. It is with the entire nation of Israel. All right, so Abraham's descendants. And we see this in Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to pick up in verse 1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. So what it's about to be said is often called the Sinai Covenant because of the location um, where, where God handed it down. 
verse 2, when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and the sons of Israel, you, yourself, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What beautiful imagery is that? Now then, if you will indeed, if, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests." And a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. All right. Notice there is a very clear if-then structure to this covenant, which we don't see with the Abrahamic covenant. This is a clear call to obedience and holiness. God, of course, is going to follow this up with the Ten Commandments and all of the law codes that we see in the rest of Exodus and Leviticus. They're reiterated in the book of Deuteronomy. And if they obey, they are going to be a kingdom of priests mediating the life and blessing and salvation of God to the entire world, just as Adam and Eve were created to do in the very beginning. So it's like God's seeking to, okay, I got, it. I got another Adam. I got like, there's Adam 1.0, there's Adam 2.0. Let's, let's see if this one can do it. Let's see if this one can do it, right? Let's see if this one can obey. The same basic plan is still in play. Now, how does that go? Those of you that have read the Old Testament, how's that go? How does Israel do? Terribly, terribly bad. In fact, if you've ever tried to make it through the Old Testament, it's like sickening. It's a hard read. There's a lot of abuse. There's a lot, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's got a big ick factor. And we pull out our cute little verses and we put them on our coffee mugs, whatever. But there's a lot of things in there that are like, ew, it's horrible. And a lot of them are God's own people doing those horrible things. And we're going to see that a little bit in the book of Isaiah. In fact, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's prophecy are super depressing chapters describing the consequences of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Sinai covenant. All right, so you're like, what in the heck is going on? Why is this such a big deal? Because they broke this agreement. They, they, they broke this partnership. Um, and there are consequences for that. Now, the next key movement in the storyline of the Old Testament, is another covenant that God makes, and this time it's with a man named David, who is God's chosen king of Israel. So go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's a little further into your Bible. Second, if you get to the first and second kings, you've gone a little too far. 2 Samuel chapter 7. A little backstory as you're turning there. God's presence has been residing in the tabernacle in Jerusalem, which is a portable structure. It's like, think of it as a really fancy, ornate tent. And David decides his life is kind of in chill mode. Things have kind of quieted down. And he decides that he wants to build God a permanent house, a temple. All right? Great idea. But here's God's response. Let's pick up 2 Samuel 7. This is another one that ought to be just like highlighted, underlined, starred, all the things, really important. Verse 12, when your days are complete, talking to David, 
and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. So there we have seed, offspring, descendant, another hyperlink, uh, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. So more kingdom imagery, right? We started that, started all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Then we had Exodus 19, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. And now we have David with this kingdom. And God's going to provide a descendant and establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Wow. Verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. And your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. All right. Now, this promise right here is partially fulfilled in David's son, Solomon, right? So there's a lot of ways you can see where Solomon totally falls in line with what God is promising here. Solomon does build the temple in Jerusalem, but the Davidic dynasty does not appear to last forever. In fact, um, the kingdom of Israel splits in two, and you can read all about this in First and Second Kings. All right, so the kingdom splits in two, and it gets real confusing at this point if you're reading through the Bible. So the northern kingdom is called Israel. But it's not like the southern kingdom isn't Israel, but it's called Judah. <laughs> so you're like, what is happening? It wouldn't be fun if it were easy, right? So you've got the northern kingdom of Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. You've got the southern kingdom of Judah. Now the Davidic kings rule in the southern kingdom of Judah, the capital of which is Jerusalem. Those are God's anointed kings, right? And um, the, the, the kings of, of northern, the northern kingdom of Israel are just bad dudes. I mean, illegitimate kingdom up there, bad stuff going on. Um, but, but they have this, this civil war. The kingdom splits. All right, so Assyria, and we're going to read about this in the book of Isaiah, Assyria comes and overtakes the northern kingdom, and a lot of, kind of takes the power of a lot of the southern kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem is spared, but then Babylon is going to come in and wipe out Judah and, and take all, all the exiles up off to, to Babylon. So that's where we have the book of Daniel, right, in that, in that setting. So that's, that's what takes place there. So the bad thing about that is the Davidic kings are carried off in exile. Now, we look at exile, and we're like, oh, but they got to come back. They didn't know they were going to come back. Nobody ever gets to come back from exile, ever. Exile is akin to death. And so you got the Davidic kings, the Davidic dynasty, carried off into exile, gone. They're gone. So how in the world is God going to make good on this promise? Once again, it appears as though God's plan to mediate life and blessing and salvation to the whole world through Abraham and then Israel and now David has failed, and that is exactly what the book of Isaiah is grappling with. The big question before Isaiah and his contemporaries is how is God going to fulfill his covenant promises in, face, uh, in the face of Israel's rebellion and exile? Put another way, how will God mediate his life and blessing and salvation to the whole world if Israel has failed to be a kingdom of priests? How will he do that? 
and, and there's, there's no Davidic king anymore. They're a kingdom with priests, but as we'll see, those priests are corrupt idolaters. And so this is the storyline that Isaiah assumes we know. This is the tension that he assumes we're sitting in. This is the grief that he assumes we bear. He assumes we understand the significance of seed and offspring going all the way back to Genesis 3, Genesis 12, and 2 Samuel 7. He assumes we know the fate of the entire world hinges on the fate of Judah and Jerusalem. He assumes we know that a king who reigns forever on the throne of David is the hope, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity. And he assumes we know that God's ultimate desire is to mediate his life and blessing and salvation to the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that he will indeed bring it to pass. At the end of the Old Testament, we just don't know how in the world how. How are we going to do it? How's he going to do it? Well, the book of Isaiah gives us, gives us I, uh, way more than hints, <laughs> way more than hints. Gives us a pretty solid outline of how God's going to do it. These are the themes that are going to show up again and again as you read. Uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Europe with a group of women. If you've been in my Bible study a long time, you've already heard this story. Um, but we were asked to help with two women's conferences, one in Germany and the other in England. I know, suffering for Jesus, missions is hard. Uh, in between those two, we planned a very quick trip to Paris. We had some time to kill. Why not? Right? You just hop on a train, and we went to Paris. But when I say quick, I mean like less than 24 hours. Very, very quick. And we, of course, were determined to see as much of this glorious city as we possibly could. And um, one of the sites that we intended to see was the Louvre Museum. If you've ever been there, you know it is massive, like huge. You could probably spend a whole month touring the place and still not see everything. Well, we had about one hour to spend there. So it was like the second we got through the gate, it was like ready, set, go. Get that map. Figure out, like, there were, like, three things in that museum we just really wanted to see. The Mona Lisa is there. There's some, some really famous works of art there. And so it was like, bing, bang, boom. We, we hit it up. We left. Um, and, and we were off to the next thing. And I'm sad to tell you, I don't remember a single thing I saw in that museum. I don't even remember the Mona Lisa. I remember the crowd around the Mona Lisa, but I don't remember, the, I don't, I don't remember seeing it. The giant glass pyramid on the outside, that's about the only thing that comes to mind when I think of the Louvre Museum, and I could have seen that without ever going inside. And I tell you that story because that's how we're going to be tempted to experience the book of Isaiah. <laughs> it is very long, you guys. Let's not pretend it isn't. It's 66 chapters. It is poetry. There's a, there's a, a few passages that are prose, that are narrative. And you are going to be, like, so happy when you get to them. But it, it's poetry. It's, it's metaphor. You can't skim poetry, you guys. You miss it, right? It can be tedious to read. All of us have a very limited amount of time to devote. And here's the thing we have to keep in mind. Isaiah is art. 
Isaiah is art. It is a literary masterpiece. We are supposed to stare at it, and then we are supposed to come back and stare at it some more, and then we come back and we stare at it some more. And every time we come back, we understand it a little bit better. If you intend to skim the book or rush through the reading, I mean, I say this in love, but, like, don't bother. I mean, use your time somewhere else because you won't get anything out of it because poetry doesn't let you skim it, right? This kind of writing style, it, 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 you, you, it's, like, pointless to, to, to do it that way. This is a book that rewards the thoughtful, patient reader. So take your time. Read it slowly. Linger on the metaphors. <laughs> do not expect a linear argument. I am a very literal, uh, linear thinker. I want, like, give me the main point, thoroughly build on it, and then give me a conclusion. No, 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 no. Isaiah's like, ha, no. We are not going to do it that way. Um, what he likes to do is he'll present a truth, and then you'll be like, what? He's like, I ain't going to tell you yet. Read. Keep reading. And then, like, a few chapters later, it'll come up again, and you're like, oh, you gave us a little bit more. But he's like, I'm not giving you the whole thing. And then you got to keep reading. Like, ten chapters later, it'll come up again. You're like, oh. And then by the end of the book, you're like, okay. I kind of get that metaphor now. I kind of get what you're saying. But, man, you're not going to get it the first time. And that's actually the beauty of it, right? Uh, for us American thinkers, this is going to feel a lot like pointless repetition. It is not. It is artistry, you guys. It's artistry. It's a teaching tool. Bible repetitions are Bible priorities. And remember, when this was given, it was mainly an oral culture. People didn't have, like, a bookshelf full of scrolls, right? They, they were memorizing these things. They were hearing these things read. And, and so the, the prophecy, it, it, it circles back, and it'll zoom out a little more, and it'll zoom out a little more, and it'll zoom out a little more. And I'm going to help you guide you through that. But just, just be ready, you're like, oh my gosh, he's saying that again? Yeah, he's saying it again, but if you'll listen, he's saying something new here, right? And it's actually really, really beautiful. Uh, we are not diving into all 66 chapters. I had to do that. You're welcome. <laughs> I have, and this is the hardest part, for each week I have selected a representative sample of passages for you, and they are in your, in your workbook. It's all spelled out. Um, in there. Uh, we are going to get a really solid overview in 10 weeks. I'm really thankful for 10 weeks uh, because we can really do it justice in that amount of time, I think. Um, let's see. Go ahead and open your workbook to page 7. And <laughs> I was skimming through, just flipping through this last night, and I noticed like five typos right off the bat. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. So I sent this off to my mom, who's now retired. She proofread it so well. She went through it like three times. But then the night before it went to the printer, I was like, hmm, I think I want to add some at-a-glance chapter summaries. And I think I want to add a few little things to the front. And I think, well, that stuff couldn't be proofread. It was proofread by me, which is why there's tons of typos. So if you see a typo, it's because April Spears decided to add something at the very last minute, and no one was there to look at it for her. So anyway, like I see one just on the very on the table of contents. Basis summary? No, it's a basic summary. Anyway. All right. God's got to keep, keep me humble. He does a, lot, does a lot of things to do that. All right. Page seven. I want to look at the basic outline of Isaiah. All right. So you will see it starts out with judgment and hope for Jerusalem. So we're southern kingdom. This book is southern kingdom focused. All right. It's Judah focused. It's Jerusalem focused. It's Davidic 
dynasty focused. It's going to talk about what's going on in the northern kingdom because that's going to affect Judah, but just know that's, that's the focal point of Isaiah. Well, then you have, and, and you have the rise and fall of Jerusalem, which is mirrored in the rise and fall of Hezekiah. Now, I want to warn you, when I say judgment and hope, in those first 39 chapters, it's judgment and a little bit of hope. All right? That's how it works. But it's, it's kind of beautiful, actually, because you'll be reading along, and you're like, oh, this is horrible. And then all of a sudden, you're like, whoa. Oh, there's like this branch that's going to come save everyone. What in the world is that? I don't know, but it's beautiful, you know? And it's like, all of a sudden, it's like the world is falling apart, and then, oh, but there's, the nations are going to come to this new Jerusalem, and da 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 and, and so there's lots of judgment, these little tiny blips of hope. And what I want you to do is I want you to devote, and I didn't tell you to do this in the book, but devote a color to the blips of hope. What's a hopeful color? Pink? Blue? I don't know. Whatever you think is hopeful. Devote a color to those. Um, and maybe on the margin, write hope or, or underline or something, just to kind of like make you aware of, of these blips of hope. All right, so you'll see a big division in the outline called Babylonian exile. All right, so there is this crazy time warp thing that happens like, at the end of chapter 39, we get in our DeLorean, and we time warp all the way to the future. Chapter 39 looks ahead to the Babylonian invasion. By chapter 40, it has already happened. Israel is exiled in Babylon, all right? Um, that brings up a question about the authorship of the book of Isaiah, actually. Uh, among conservative scholars who have a high view of Scripture, there are many believe Isaiah is the one and only author of the book, and the way he was able to write the second half of, of, of Isaiah, even though he died waiting for the Babylonian invasion, um, is because God gave him the supernatural revelation, which we're supernaturalists. We are fine with that, okay? Uh, there are also many conservative scholars who, who hold a high view of Scripture as well uh, who would say that Isaiah passed his scroll off to his disciples. In, chapter, in Isaiah 8, he mentions this group of disciples. He mentions sealing up his scroll. All right, so he passed it on to his disciples who treasured it, who reopened it, and after the Babylonian exile um, would have, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, added much of what we see in the second half of the book of Isaiah. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project holds this view. I used to think that only liberal scholars would make such a claim. I've realized that not everyone who holds a multiple author view does so because they don't believe in supernatural revelation. Um, some of them do so for very persuasive exegetical reasons, meaning they, they derive that conclusion from the text itself. Um, the actual words of the Hebrew text have, have pushed them in that direction. My opinion is I really don't care. I really don't care. I start to care when someone denies that God could have given Isaiah this entire prophecy, right? That, that's when I start to care um, because in that case, they're working from the presupposition that the Bible is merely a human book, um, and that's not an orthodox view of the Bible. It's not an orthodox view of inspiration. So, but be careful of pegging someone as liberal just because they, be, they believe in two, two Isaiahs, in a sense. You got to ask, why do you believe that? And I'm learning in my journey in, in, in theology in general, I need to ask why a lot more often before I put labels on people. Because some people have come up with their views because they've just taken from culture and, and plunked it into the Bible. But 
there's a lot of people that have come up with their views that are different than mine through careful examination of the actual text of Scripture, and we need to be generous with one another. That wasn't in my notes. It's just uh, something I'm learning, something I'm learning. All right, back to your outline. The second half is so good. It's so good. The theme is comfort. Starts out, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. It's so good. And so we go from like judgment, a little bit of hope, to hope. And then you have still a little sprinkles of judgment. But there's so much hope. And so, man, if you guys can hold on, if you can hold on until we get to chapter 40. But you got to look at the bad news before you can really appreciate the good news. Very, very exciting things to come. Uh, Let's see. One thing I can guarantee, one thing I can guarantee, if you uh, devote yourself to the study, you will walk away with a richer, fuller understanding of the gospel than you have now. And I say that to you if you are new to the gospel, if you are new to Bible study, I say that to you if you have been studying the Bible for your entire life, all right? You are going to walk away with a new understanding, and it is, woo, I'm black and white TV. You're going from that to the high-def flat screen. It's going to be gorgeous. It's going to be gorgeous. Um, I do want, that's the end of the lesson, I do want to take a look at page 8, This format of this book is the same. If you've done studies with me in the past, same format. All right, so I start out each week giving you a little intro. All right, and then I added these at-a-glance sections. I thought these chapters are so lengthy, it'd be nice for you to have kind of a one-stop shop, one place to land where you can get an idea, a bird's-eye view. All right, so turn the page to page 10. Day one, and certainly you can do this all in one day. You don't have to divide it, but I've divided it for you. Day one, you're just going to read. You just read the selected passages. Day two, you're going to read and mark. Now, in the past, I've been very specific about the markings. Underline this, circle this. I've given you things to look for, but you mark whatever in the heck you want because these are really long and it's going to be very tedious for you to follow very specific instructions. So I just, I've given you some things to look for, but girl, you just mark it up however you feel led, all right? Look for repetition, okay? So I've actually printed the text for you in your workbook. So if you're sitting in car line, you don't need an extra book. You just got it. It's your workbook. It's all there. All right, day three, observe. All right, so we're still observing. And these are questions. And day three questions are pretty simple. It's just straightforward from the text. You don't have to think a whole lot. You just got to find the answer. And I've even given you the verse where the answer is, all right? Day four is interpret. What does it actually mean? This is where I'll give you some cross-references. This is where we start to dig a little deeper. We start to think about what what we're reading means. I love that sound. Um, And then day five is apply. Like, how does this actually work in our real lives today? All right, now what I'm going to say to you the reading's long, so some of you are not going to get to day five. You're just not. You do not have the time, and that is okay. I would recommend you try to get through the observed days. At least read the passages. Your brain's going to have to work so hard if you come here totally cold and you don't have any familiarity with the passages, and that's totally fine, but do the observation and then come here on Tuesday mornings. Let me fill in the interpretation piece I'll get started on the application piece, and then you'll have some time in your groups each week to really fill that in, all right? So if you can only do a little bit, level one, just read it. Level two, complete those, those two days of observation 
and you'll at least come here, your brain will be ready to process what I'm going to say. Otherwise, it's going to be a little bit like drinking out of a fire hydrant, which is fine. You'll get something in your mouth, I promise. Um, but, but you'll be less overwhelmed if you have a little familiarity with the text. All right? All right, let me pray.